Anyone here say, yeah, Todd, I had some bad water, and the next day, it was, you know, I was toast. Anybody just say, yeah, I've had some really bad water before? Anybody? It was the first service at like 10 or 12. One, two, okay. Okay, good, yeah. I've never had bad water, but I know it can pretty much change your schedule because you're going to be strictly isolated for a while once it happens, right? But I had a good friend who had some bad water on a mission trip. In fact, a lot of you know him. A lot of you know Mike Hain. He moved here from Florida to help us plant the church, instrumental in some of our early days, just a good friend. I was his youth pastor, in fact, years ago. Um, I was in college and worked at my home church as a junior high youth pastor, and Mike was in ninth grade. And so that's how I got to know Mike initially. Well, one summer, uh, I took a number of junior hires, along with some other folks, to Mexico. And so one of our stops was somewhere in Mexico. We were on our way to Chihuahua, uh, but in this something that's supposed to be a hotel, but I'm not sure it really was. We stayed there overnight, um, and he was really thirsty. And, and I'm not sure all the details about why we didn't have enough water for the group and, and different bottles, but we told the kids, hey, you just need to make it to tomorrow morning. We don't have a lot of water, but don't drink the water in your room. And Mike thought he was going to die, and so he drank the water in his room. So the next morning, we're packing up to head to, to ministry somewhere in an area and Mike's not on the bus, you know. So the guy overseeing me, our, our main youth pastor, his name was Ab, uh, he said, Todd, where's Mike? I was like, I don't know. I go to his room, and Mike is just not in a good situation, you know. I'm like, hey, Mike. He said, Todd, I can't go anywhere today, you know, this little freshman in high school. He goes, I never should have drunk that water. I said, yeah, you shouldn't have. And so we worked out a plan. We'd come back, and and it worked out in the end. But I'll never forget, Mike and I still laugh about that moment when he drank that water because it really changed a lot of stuff. It made him sick, which is why when you have bad water, the only thing to do is to throw it out. If you use it and drink it, it's going to make you sick. It's just best to get rid of it. After all, bad water is actually useless. Say it with me. Useless, right? That was the case in the ancient city of Laodicea as well. Now, they may not have been going on a mission trip. They may not have been doing that. But they had the issue of bad water, which was making people sick. You say, what do you mean, Todd? Well, Laodicea was situated between two other cities in that part of Turkey, which we know now as Turkey. It's Hierapolis was north of it, and Colossae was south of it. And what they thought was a really good invention, piping water into their city, because they were situated in such a way agriculturally that water wasn't easily accessible in their exact location. So they piped it in from Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, its medicinal, uh, the medicinal value of that hot water. Colossae was known for its cold water from different and various mountains. And so Laodicea thought, we'll pipe in the water the problem was there was no real way to keep the water hot. There was no real way to keep the water cold, so it lost its medicinal value. It lost its refreshment, and what you had was just lukewarm water that was actually useless. Say it with me. Useless. People in this community often got sick. The water really had no value at all. Even though it appeared to have this certain kind of function, it just never worked. So knowing that history about Laodicea, not necessarily about Mike Cain in Mexico, but about Laodicea, helps the letter that Jesus wrote to it, it kind of helps it come to life, to be frank with you. So look with me at Revelation 3, would you? 
in this remaining letter to the seven churches. It's to a church in a city called Laodicea, which was known for a number of things. I would say, namely, it's aqueduct system. It's water transportation system. They were proud of it, but it didn't work very well. It made people sick. It ended it, the city simply had lukewarm water. In fact, let me show you one of the hot springs that's north of Laodicea. Here's a picture of it. This is looking out from Laodicea towards Hierapolis. That's a picture of one of the hot springs there. Here's an ancient remainder of one of the aqueducts that was coming from that location into Laodicea. This was a, a ruin of some of the aqueducts. And so they would try to transport the hot water from there or from mountains in Colossae to the, from the cold water. And it just never worked. And so their aqueduct system, even though they thought, hey, we're really progressive, ended up being somewhat putrid. People were sick a lot and the water was actually useless. This is the city in which this church lived. A couple of other things about the city you'll want to know about historically. It was also known for its uh, medical school, especially in regards to eyes. They had a number of things that helped people with their eye care. And then they were known for manufacturing wool, especially black wool. So I tell you that historically because the city was known for its useful resources. And that's not bad. Nothing wrong with that. A city should be quite utilitarian and functional. That's good. But the church in that city tried to adopt this same mentality, thinking they had it within themselves to be successful and prosperous, utilitarian, functional. Like, we can do it ourselves. And while that might work for a city, it's terrible for a church. And so we're going to see this morning more about what Jesus says to this church in this city. We'll take the usual format. We'll look at the city, which we just did. It's mentioned in verse 14. We'll look also at the church, and then we'll look at the Christ, how they connect. We'll take some questions. If you have some, be texting them in. And then we'll end with one simple application I think will drive home the point of what Jesus is saying to this church. So let's dig in together, can we? Here Jesus writes to the church in Laodicea. He's the one who is, says here, he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So the one writing to this city I should say, the one writing to the church in the city, uh, he's verified as true. In fact, the word amen there, it's a Greek word, means to, to add affirmation. You may hear the phrase, so be it. It comes from a Hebrew root, meaning amen, meaning this is true. That kind of goes along with the idea of Christ being the faithful and true witness. What he's saying here is that when Christ speaks, it's, the, it's solid and uh, it's, it's a... It's verified. It's undeniable. When he speaks, it's the real deal, we'll call it. He's also called the beginning of God's creation. That's a, a phrase that can maybe trip us up. If you're new to the Christian faith, if maybe you're here as a skeptic or a seeker, and you're like, oh, so what does that mean about what y'all believe? Was Jesus created by God, like the Mormons believe, or like Jehovah's Witnesses? Is Jesus the brother of Satan? Some, some religions believe that. No, this is not a phrase that says Jesus was created. It's actually a phrase that says Jesus is the source of creation. Does that make sense? This is what is meant by the idea of the beginning of God's creation. In other words, he's the source. Again, kind of the, the, the real, true, verified uh, source of, of how God's work gets done. Some commentators believe that this phrase, the beginning of God's creation, may refer to creation, as in John 1, when it says that all things were made by him, speaking of Jesus, and without him, not anything made that was made, could be true. 
I think there may be some re- uh, evidence that says this could be speaking about the resurrection as well. That upon the resurrection and God's validation and vindication of Christ's sacrifice as fully satisfactory, then the, the, this, this new creation, this regeneration, the Holy Spirit's work to bring life to dead people, wow, that's through the work of Christ and that's how the work of God gets done. It, it could be true as well. Regardless of where you land on that, this is not saying Jesus was created. Jesus is the creator. He is one, in essence, with the Father, distinct as a person, but one in Trinity. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind. It simply means he's the source of how God creates his work. So to this church in this city, Jesus says, I know your works. Now watch this. Look at your Bibles and watch with me. He says in verse 15, I know your works. And then in verse 16, he says that they are lukewarm. I believe what he's saying here is that this church and their works were lukewarm. All right? Middle of the road. It's in contrast to what he describes them in verse 15. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. You see that? Jesus actually says, you're not, you and your works, you're not cold or hot. You're neither. You're in the middle. You're... You're useless. You're like water piped into the city that has no value medicinally or for even just refreshing purposes. What it was intended for, it's not happening. So you're like useless water. You're lukewarm. That's what he says here. Now, I'm going to pause here and mention that I don't believe for a moment, I never have, by the way, I heard this growing up a lot. That the works and the status of this church, the condition of this church, was that they should have been either lost, thus like cold, or they should have been like hot, really on fire for God. And so pastors and teachers often would relate these two words to being really backslidden or lost and to really being, you know, fire hot for Jesus. Just don't be in the middle, they'd say to us. I, thought, I always thought it was odd, like, wow, so you're saying that you would rather me be like totally pagan and lost? Than just like in the middle for God? And then he's like, well, not really. We want you to be hot. Just don't be lukewarm. I always confused, like, man, lukewarm must really be bad because it seems like that would be better than being lost. So I always had this conflict. The truth is, that's not what this passage is saying. The word cold here is not a reference to backslidden lost people. The word hot is not a reference to like fire-blooded, hell-breathed, uh, hellfire and brimstone pastors. It's just a, it's a metaphor to say this. Water has a purpose. Cold water does good things. Hot water does good things. But lukewarm water does nothing. It just makes you sick. It has no real purpose. Does that make sense? So in other words, be one or the other. Fulfill your purpose. Just don't be useless. Say it with me. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here. So don't for a minute think that God would rather have you be lost than backslidden. First of all, that's not in the character of God. (laughs) Okay? God wants you to be useful, not useless. That's the point of this text. Now, let's drive this home further. He says, I wish that you were either cold or hot. In other words, fulfilling your purpose. But because you are useless or lukewarm, you fulfill no purpose at all. You're neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. See this idea of, of lukewarm, purposeless, useless Christianity makes God sick. Now, that's harsh to hear. It's difficult language, but it's not as difficult as what he's about to say. 
And these seven letters, I'll just be honest, they're, they're all seven pretty stern. There's only a couple that obviously were to churches that were doing very well, but most of them are, are pretty much in your face. He knew their works and he speaks to them. Here he says, you have lukewarm works. You have a lukewarm condition. It's useless. Why is that the case? Why is their condition one of uselessness and not usefulness? Verse 17 explains it. Notice the word for. I'd circled that. It's an explanatory kind of bridge word. Here's why you're lukewarm. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. And you don't realize that you're actually, now watch these words, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So what causes or what breeds lukewarmness? In a word, it's pride. Thinking we've got it made in the shade, we've got this thing handled, we know what we're doing, when really we don't have a clue, we've left God out of the entire equation, and we've kind of systemized, here's two words I want you to see, we've kind of systemized our Christianity to the point that we know exactly what to do, when to do it, and it's all external activity with no real true solid source. And this is, this is why I think he talks about Christ. He talks about himself as the beginning, the faithful and true witness, the amen. He, he sees himself here as the source of all real activity, all real true activity. In a, in a, in a useless situation, we're still doing things. We're still active and busy, but we're, 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 we're resourcing that from ourselves, from our own pride thinking we've, we really are doing a great job. And the truth is, because we left Christ out of the equation, because pride has caused us to be blind to our own condition, we're actually, he says, we're blind, we're naked, we're poor. You see, lukewarmness is the inability, watch this, to see just how useless you really actually are. Pride covers your eyes. You think, man, I'm, I'm doing awesome. Look at all these things I'm doing. But because it's not sourced from the right stream, we'll say, it's all in the flesh. It's all human energy. God looks at that and says, wow, you're actually blind. You're poor. You're naked. You're wretched. You're pitiable. Do you see what he's saying here? Because lukewarm Christians leave, watch this now, the Savior out of the system they think they're actually useful when in reality they're actually useless. Kind of a mouthful there. Did you catch that? Which tells me something about God's economy and his definitions. Usefulness to God is not tied up in what I do. Okay, radar should go off, light should flash. Wow, that's what we're told every day, Todd. But this letter... And this text is showing us something quite different. Usefulness to God is not wrapped up in just what I do. The system. It's actually tied down, rooted in who I belong to. It's a relationship. Let me show you what I mean. He explains this further. Notice some key words the rest of this chapter that I think talk about Christ and his ultimate um, this ultimate relationship that I think should signify and typify hot slash cold Christians, useful Christians. 
He says here, you don't realize you're uh, poor, you're wretched, you're blind, you're naked, you're pitiable. So here's what you should do. I counsel you. Those very beginning words in verse 18 are words of relationship. You see that? This is not a merchant transaction. This is not a, a consumer type phrase. This would not be something that would be used in the marketplace. But that's how they were thinking. The city was very useful, utilitarian, lots of resources, prosperous, commercial, agricultural. The church thought, well, we'll just simply take that angle, man. We'll just kind of produce a Christianity that works, so to speak. He says, listen, I actually want to give you advice, like face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, friend-to-friend advice. Here's what I'd say to you. I counsel you to buy, say the next two words with me, from me. Let's try that again. I counsel you to buy from me. Those are huge words. You see them again later uh, in the text. Uh, Same idea about sitting with me. Here's what Jesus is saying. You may have a certain amount of what you think are riches and clothing and eyesight, but you've bought them from the wrong source. You should instead, here's my advice, he says, buy them from me. So there's a difference in what we can produce and what Jesus grows. Notice the word choice there. You follow me? Works are produced, fruit is grown, and Jesus grows fruit. He does in us things that just overflow. We're not a product. We're not a, uh, something that he you know, puts on a shelf and then sells the highest bidder to get his job done. It's a relationship. So there's so much in this text about this relationship. I think it's in contrast to the city and the church in the city that was you know, very utilitarian, commercial, and prosperous. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. He lists these things again. Gold refined by fire so that you can actually be rich. The gold here he's talking about is gold that's been refined probably by persecution. It's probably the, the hint here. Refining is always in Scripture. Something that enters your life that is difficult and, and hard but always produces a better result in the end. Fire is seen that way. It it burns out impurities. I think he's saying here, you want to be really rich? Then buy your gold from me. It will be difficult. It will cost you something, but it will actually be true riches. You'll be laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nothing corrupts them instead of treasures on earth, Matthew chapter 6. He says here, get your white garments from me so that you may clothe yourself and that your nakedness not be seen. I think any of the Laodiceans who read that would have thought immediately about the black garments they were manufacturing from their black wool industry. They're saying, oh, so the black wool doesn't work? It's not the wool that's the point. The point is the source of the wool. And Christ is saying, hey, you need clothing from me. Otherwise, even if you dress in the finest black wool, you're going to look naked in my eyes. It's the source that's the issue here. He then says this, uh, get salve to anoint your eyes from me so that you may see. And again, he's simply saying you aren't seen because you're lukewarm, you're proud, you think that all of your works are going to actually solve the problem, this system. He says, man, it's all about a relationship with a Savior. Notice how this this bent towards relationship even begins to uh, be accentuated even more. He says, those whom I, what's the next word? Love. So, So God loves 
the people in this church. I do believe this is a church of Christians who have strayed and have begun to be proud about their works and are putting their confidence in their abilities and their flesh, and that is putrid to God. So even though they think they're useful, they're actually useless because the source of their energy, the source of their works is, is uh, misplaced. So he says to these people, I love you, and so I will reprove and discipline you, and you should in return be zealous and repent. Meaning, turn from trusting in our own works and ourself and rely on this relationship with the Savior. Look at some more words here. In fact, I've circled several words that I think flow out of the word love. Can we just do a little exercise in circling here? You got your pen ready? Look at this. He says, those whom I love. Now watch how all these words come from that single relationship word. He says, I reprove, circle that word. I discipline, circle that word. Behold, I stand, circle that word. I'm knocking, circle that word. I will come in, circle that word. And will eat, circle that word. I will grant him, circle that word. To sit with me, circle that word. So all of these verbs here. I'm, I'm, I'm reproving, I'm disciplining you, I'm standing, I'm knocking. I want to commend you, I want to eat with you in fellowship. I'll grant you to sit with me. Man, all of these words come out of this idea that Jesus loves his people. Church, this is encouraging at its fundamental level. That when you feel dry, burned out, crusted over by a system by the energy of the flesh, by working your tail off to try to impress somebody or even God, and in the end you're like, man, this is getting me nowhere. In the middle of those dry and desert times, look at me, church, look at me. Jesus loves you. I've been in those times, haven't you? And man, isn't it refreshing to know that in the middle of those times, God, hey, I want to come in. I want to sit down and have a meal. I want to talk. God's not coming in with another to-do list, another item to check off. He, he just wants to be with. And that's refreshing. He says here, that's why he's reproving and disciplining us, and we should repent. Those that do that, he says in the last part of this, that then they'll eventually sit down with him on his father's throne, this sharing of authority again. By the way, notice something here. The word conquer there in verse 21 is in the past tense. I think it referring to Christ's resurrection. I don't think this has an eschatological aspect here, by the way. Until you get to the phrase, then you'll sit down with me. So there's a sense in which Christ has already conquered. That's a great sense, isn't it? The gospel, crucifixion, resurrection. But then when the kingdom's consummated, then at that point we'll share that with Christ. You'll see why I mention that in a minute, so hold on to that thought. But I think this is interesting here. This is past tense. Christ has conquered. He defeated our enemies. He has now sat down, indicating completion. And he says, you know what? I want to share that with you. And so that's why we should have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, so notice in this last part, again, just some traits of Christ that I think jump out to us. I've listed four of them. 
You may find more. This is not an exhaustive list. But I think they describe for us this ultimate relationship we have, which is better, watch this, than this temporary system. Wouldn't, wouldn't a, an ultimate, never-ending, eternal, powerful, loving, and patient Savior be much better than just like a system that we're trying to work to our own advantage? Of course it is. But the church in Laodicea, those saints there, were, were seeing this as the way to get things done. Instead of this, they were seeing their rituals as the avenue to usefulness. And Jesus says actually the opposite. It's the relationship that's the avenue to usefulness. Please hear this, church of the 21st century. Please hear this, all you Westerners. (laughs) Please hear this, all of you who have day timers and iPhones with the notes, you know, application and to-do list and check marks. Please hear this, all of you who have like three or four apps on your phone for how to get things done. To-do list and calendars. Please hear this, your pastor, okay? I'm rowing this boat with you. This is a difficult thing to hear. But, but, and I think this letter, maybe above all other ones, I don't know. I think this letter, at least for me, is the hardest one to put my hands around because I find myself so convicted by it. I, I find myself often leaning and being tempted to live this way. I like lists. I like to see things checked off. I want to be productive. And I'm not saying that's all sinful. I'm saying if I root my activity in that that's how God gets things done because I'm so powerful or I'm so persuasive or I'm this or that, man, we've got severe fundamental problems at that point. But boy, pride can be deceiving and blinding. And I just know as a Westerner, Growing up in a capitalistic, free enterprise, you better not waste the breath you're taking up, the space you're taking up. The breath, you know, don't, don't waste that. Do something. Be productive. This is America after all, right? <laughs> in that kind of environment, man, you, you can feel the pressure to produce. And sometimes in those kinds of environments, even in churches, the relationship side gets lost. The idea that, that Jesus is knocking and wants to fellowship. I'm like, hey, I'll answer the door, but we should get to work, shouldn't we? That's what I'm thinking, right? Welcome in, Jesus. Here's your list, too. You know, that's kind of how I'm responding. Well, we, we got a job to do. And even preachers and pastors, we can cloud and sometimes disguise our language with God words and church lingo to where it sounds like, yeah, we should be doing that. And all we're doing sometimes is just um, laying on heavier burdens clouding the real issue that it's really fundamentally about this relationship. That's what matters. I want to just be very clear with you this morning. I just want to be 100% transparent. I think I usually am, but I just don't want there to be any doubt about this. I don't want anyone in this fellowship, I don't want anyone in this fellowship to think that you're useful because of only what you do. All right? Your value and your usefulness extends way deeper than what you do. It extends to who you are. You are a child of God. And God, if he has saved you by his grace, and you're in right relationship with him, he desires fellowship with you. Does he desire to use you, and does he desire you to work for him? Yes, 
But that is secondary. Your functionality is not as important as your relationship. I want that to be loud and clear. Does that make sense? Okay? You're not expendable if you suddenly can't do your job. Jesus loves us. Even when we're in times of of pride and arrogance and thinking we can empower our own efforts, he's going to reprove and rebuke us. He's going to call us to repentance. But it's so, I'm so glad he loves us enough to call us back to this relational foundation all of us need to operate from where he is the source of everything that we do. So, so I don't know that it's necessarily that, that what we do and the activity and the, I'll use the word works are bad it's that they're negative and hurtful when they're in the wrong order. Can you, can you get on board that train a little bit? And so relationship first, activity second. In fact, let's put this in a, in a simple sentence. Can we do that? I think we'll just be best if we get there in a hurry and kind of make this statement. This will be maybe the best way to be clear. Will you read this with me, in fact? Our usefulness to God is grounded in our fellowship with God. Indeed, our purpose is first and foremost relational, secondarily functional. If we switch those, if we think God is just a tool instead of a treasure, and we think he sees us in the same way, we actually are useless, not useful. No matter what you're doing, it's in our humility who come into a relationship that we actually find our purpose and usefulness. And I just want to tell you, I think that's heard easier in other parts of the world than in our Western America. I do. I think our context and our culture makes the American church especially susceptible to pride an arrogance, and independence that breeds this very type of thing of switching around and thinking, you know what? We can do this. Man, we're, we're, we're exceptional. We, we save the world. And the whole time we've forgotten that what God's really after is a body of people related to him that he's empowering by his spirit and that move at his call and will. So I, I hope that you're hearing this and kind of grasping this. This is what Laodicea, I think, is where they were. And Christ was knocking at the door. Let me in. Let's have relationship. I mean, how many of you would be frustrated if, if your husband only saw your marriage or your wife only saw your marriage as a list of to-dos? Every hand here that's married should be up. You'd be frustrated. Now, do you want your spouse to kind of get their work done? Yes. yes. <laughs> But if that's all it was, if every morning, every evening, every day, Julie and I related on a to-do list of bases, at some point, one of us would have a crucial conversation, all right? Same thing with your kids. I mean, you want your kids to adopt chores early, like, you know, one or two months old. They should be doing their fair share, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Relax, okay? Um, you believe in the kitchen, get a job. They sh- they, right, they should carry their load. Their, but yet, if, if you don't base your love on how well they're performing, or at least you shouldn't, 
See, right there, we just hit a chord. We think, well, sometimes I do, Todd. Isn't that how God treats us? Doesn't God love me more when I do really well? No. In fact, let me say to you some astounding, astoundingly beautiful news. Whatever you do doesn't make God love you anymore. No matter how good what you've done is. Did you know that? God fully, perfectly, completely loves you. Now, I don't know in my mind how to balance all of that in times that I sin. Because I'm a finite parent with a very limited mind. So I know with my children, I'm like, man, I'm struggling to love perfectly, completely. I do love them unconditionally, but I wish. So sometimes I think, how does God do that? I don't know. Can I confess that to you? He is so, so big and awesome. But theologically, doctrinally, nothing you do makes God love you more. Hallelujah. So that's why the relationship is what matters. It's fundamental. It's essential. We are primarily relational, secondarily functional. And so switching these is what I would say is a lukewarm person or a lukewarm church. Thinking that what we do matters most and you know what, how it's sourced is, is, is irrelevant. That's not true. The Bible says how our activity is sourced actually matters a great deal because it determines whether we're useful or useless. Now, I give you analogies about marriage or children, and they kind of help make sense, but let me just give you a simple Bible story before I take a few questions. I think this is exactly where Mary and Martha were. So who's Mary and Martha? Luke chapter 10. Jesus came to visit them. He knocked on their door. They're believers. He comes in. Kind of a physical representation of Revelation 3 in some ways. He wants to eat with them. Mary, man, she's, she plops down at Jesus' feet, and she's listening. She's relating. She's fellowshipping. She's communing. And Martha is just tackling. I mean, she's just owning the to-do list. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she's, you can just see her checking things off, putting more on the list. The whole time she's getting distracted. She's getting a little resentful. So she speaks up. She says, hey, Jesus, like, uh, am I the only one around here doing anything? The answer to the question, by the way, would be yes. <laughs> so it's a martyr's cry for attention. But Jesus loves her and he says, hey, you know what, Martha, you're really distracted right now. He even uses the word encumbered, meaning kind of burden. Like, you've got some burdens on you. And Mary, then he says, Mary's chosen that good part. Wow. So in the relationship, in the arena of Christianity, serving God, there's actually a good part. Yes, it's the good part of the relationship where you sit and you're with Jesus. And that's more important that overrides, that's fundamental to the doing part. That's what he's saying. Mary chose that. And by implication, saying, Martha, that's what I want you to choose. So okay, maybe drop the pen and paper for a bit, come out of the kitchen, come over to the couch, and let's just talk. That's in the Bible. It's a, it's a physical story from the history of Jesus that shows us what he values. And it's echoed here in Revelation 3. Jesus values relationship first. For out of it flows and is sourced our functionality. And when we switch them, we border on or become lukewarm. Now, how do we go about avoiding that? How do we 
Make sure we're not lukewarm, but hot or cold. I'll address that in a moment with one what I call fellowship tip. But first, a couple of questions that we have. Then let's take any questions that may have come in. Is this the only one, Jill? There's two? Okay, thank you. How does Laodicea's letter differ from the letter to Ephesus? I think in the letter to Ephesus, and one difference is that they were commended for at least one thing, uh, starting well. There is no commendation to Laodicea at all. Apart from that, there may be some similarities in these two, of a love grown cold, or maybe an overly, overly uh, an overdependence upon works, perhaps, um, to the point that the relationship suffers. But to answer the question most textually, it does seem that Ephesus did receive at least one commendation. Laodicea has received zero. Now, let's get to our fellowship tip. Because we can hear this and see this letter. And we can wonder, okay, how do I do that? How do I, how do I make sure relationship rules that I'm not just functional only, but I'm relational as well? How can I do that, Todd? Here's the one tip I would give. The fellowship tip is to focus on his completion, not your addition. Okay? Say it with me. Ready? Focus on his completion, not your addition. In, in, my, in, in all transparency, most of the time when, I, when my pride kicks in and I find myself struggling with just being still before the Lord, most of the time, and there's a few exceptions, but most of the time, it's because I'm, I'm somewhere deep inside thinking that I've just got to make sure I add to what Jesus did so God will be impressed. I, I, I kind of, I'm embarrassed to admit that. But I think in front of the mirror, I would say there are times I'm thinking, man, if I, if I just did that, probably God probably would love me a little more. I don't know if I ever voiced that, but somewhere deep inside I have this thought, maybe. This idealistic, wrong thought that one more thing would probably tip the scales in my favor. When actually, nothing I do will add to the completed work of Jesus or make God love me anymore. Even saying that sounded weird to me. And yet, I believe that. But we love to feel good about ourselves by what we do, don't we? I think when fellowship is anchored in, in the fully satisfactory, absolutely completed work of Jesus, then we rest. That's why Jesus would say, watch this phrase, Come unto me, all you, Matthew 11, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he said, take my Yoke. I don't think resting and yoking make sense together. I'm like, I don't want to take a yoke and of that resting. How does that work, Jesus? It's because he owns the yoke. He's in there with us. He's bearing the way. He's just saying, join me. I'll do all the work. It's the same idea of an heir. He's done all the work. We get all the benefit. And I think the greatest fellowship tip this pastor could give you would be that when you're with Jesus focus on his 
completion. And when I say when you're with him, I mean when you take that time every day to, you know, intentionally meditate and read the Bible and pray. When you set aside time to commune with God in fellowship. That's what I mean. I know you're always with him. I realize that. But in those moments when you intentionally pull aside and you stop doing stuff, don't, don't let that even turn into another activity. <laughs> good. I got those four things of my quiet time checked off. One, two, three, four. Man, I'm good at quiet time. That's kind of how we think sometimes, isn't it? Hey, God, see how good I am at quiet time? I'm really good at fellowshipping with you, aren't I? And we're going to brag about that. Man, just, just relax and realize everything God needed to be pleased with you and reconciled with you was done in Jesus. Everything. That's the fellowship tip. Focus on his completion. I would say the words like gospel-centered ring with that. We use that word a lot around here. We talk a lot about being saturated with the gospel. All we're saying is that anchor your feet in this truth that Jesus has paid it all and nothing you do is going to make God love you anymore or add to his worth. Isn't that just sweet? So when I said that you were going to come in and have tea this morning, that's kind of what this is about. It's like I'm not here to to kind of press on you like I have the last two or three weeks. I know Bob wants that, but not today, Bob, okay? <laughs> I just, this letter is, it pictures a Jesus knocking on the door saying, hey, at the core of this thing called Christianity that we've been handed down for centuries is a relationship. And the system of doing things in that, that may be good things, but without the source of a living Savior driving it, those actually become useless. What I want you to do is realize that your usefulness is all tied up in relating to me. Usefulness is tied up in fellowship. So I'm going to have a practice this morning. I want to have us practice focusing on his completion, not our addition. How are you going to do that, Todd? Because right now, there's not a whole lot you can do but listen to me. Do you know that? Now, some of you are probably making lists for tomorrow. Or you're thinking about what your lists are for today. But in, in, in a real sense, you can't get up and do something. You can't go to the back. You can't play an instrument. You can't fix the coffee. You can't run the sound. You really are, are a captive audience. You have to really uh, you know, keep your capitalistic to-do tendencies down for a while while you're in here and just listen. So guess what? Since you're trapped in here, <laughs> I'm going to have you practice just focusing on the completed work of Christ. And I want you just to rest and sit and fellowship with God. Yeah, you're with other people. But I want to have you practice this fellowship tip right here together, okay? So I'm going to have the band join me. I'm going to have, if you would, ask you to bow your heads. And I want you just to right there, kind of picture, if you would, Jesus knocking. He sees your to-do list. He sees your system of getting things done for his name's sake, so to speak. But he also sees a dry and empty and perhaps crusted life. Maybe one that no one really knows how close you are to just about being done. How much longer have we got to keep doing these things? If you were to be real honest, you don't find a lot of joy in it. 
Yeah, that's, that's the reason I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. In the words of an old preacher, just draw a circle around your chair. And I want you to just take some time to fellowship with God. To commune with Him. To actually enjoy God. You know, that's actually the answer to the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Confession, their Shorter Catechism. Question one is this. What is the chief end of man? This is in the 1600s. This came out of those, those centuries. And the answer is simple. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Are you enjoying God? Or does He only seem like a taskmaster? And if I go to his presence, he'll have one more thing for me to do. And you know me, I'll do it, Todd, because i got to keep God happy. No, Jesus has already satisfied God fully. So could you rest in that for a bit? Would you just now just focus on the completed work of Christ for your sin? One of the images I use often in my quiet time comes from Romans in which Christ's work is seen in a singular way. And yet our sins are seen in a plural way. And so I picture this pile of sins that I brought to the cross. It overwhelms me. And it's going to crush me. But then one singular individual steps up and is crucified. And all of those mounds and piles of sin are taken upon him. And God's wrath is satisfied. And I'm left justified, guiltless, and free. Where did the piles of sin go, I ask? What happened to the mounds of evidence against me that would convict me? Jesus sent them away. as you're communing with the Lord and as you're fellowshipping, as you are focusing on His completion, not your addition, let me read some beautiful scripture as a backdrop to your time right now. And notice how in these verses from Hebrews, it flows from confidence and assurance to then our actions. So he employs both, but he puts them in the right order. This is Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You have a great high priest who stood in for you and stands in for you. Will you rest in that for a bit? Will you right now thank the Lord for his sacrifice for you? Just enjoy God. Rest fellowship.